And we see in Acts chapter 3, uh, the beginning of what's healing for the nations. In Acts chapter 3, healing for the nations. Well, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and going to read through verse 10 at this point. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 3, verse 1, and follow along as I read. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let us pray. Our Father, as we read your word this morning and consider it, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and minds to think on, to comprehend to receive the truth of your word. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our lives, to our fellowship. God, so that you would be magnified in our midst and exalted. Lord, I pray this morning that even as I speak your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What's this story about? Why did Luke, a doctor, choose to include this miracle as the first glimpse of the church's ministry after the initial day of Pentecost? I wonder why. I think as we read through the story, we can maybe see some details that Luke gives us as a doctor. I won't take time to point them out this morning, but you can notice it as you read through. But but why why do you think Luke chooses to give us This story, I mean, in chapter two, verse 43, Luke tells us "And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I wonder why this one. Why does he give us this one? I think at least one reason he gives us this one is is that he wants us to see God's glory and power are displayed when the church lives and tells others about God's redemptive mission in Jesus's name. I think this is one of the things that he wants us to see. He wants us to see then. He shows us in chapter 3 how how Peter and John are are living in such a way, and by extension, even the church, are living in such a way that they're ministering in the power of Christ, and they're telling others how they can experience a great healing, a great physical healing and spiritual healing. And so first we see in verses 1 through 10, There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. Now, God's reasonings are deeper than we can really even begin to know. 
And though there are many, I want to suggest to you two reasons for the lame man's miraculous healing from this text. I think first, Luke intends to convey something to us about Jesus' ministry. I think he intends to convey that Jesus' powerful ministry continues on through the church as we minister in his name. That is to say that the ministry of Christ did not stop when he died, but it continues on. Notice the setting. Peter and John are heading to the temple at the ninth hour to pray, and there sitting by the gate is a man who's been lame since birth. So it appears that his vocation was begging alms as he lay there daily. He would shout to passers-by, alms, alms, alms for the poor. And on this particular day, verses 5 and 6 tell us that Peter and John seized the man's attention with an intentional stare. And they spoke these healing words. Silver and gold I have none, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And at that moment, there was this miraculous power of God that flowed from Peter to the lame man when Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And on that moment, Dr. Luke tells us, immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. Luke's telling us the same healing power of Jesus during his earthly ministry was manifested through Peter on this day. He's telling us that Christ's power was real and present. It was real and present then, and it shouldn't surprise us that the power of Christ is real and present today. Power for both physical healing and spiritual healing. The story's told of a conversation between Pope Innocent II and Thomas Aquinas. Pope Innocent II was counting a large sum of money and he said to Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic theologian, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold, I have none. To which Thomas Aquinas replied, True, Holy Father, neither can she now say, Rise and walk. Thomas's point is one that we need to hear. What detractors are you allowing in your life that's minimizing your faith in Christ and his powerful work through you? What detractors are you allowing in your life that are minimizing your faith? Does anybody know what that is? Okay. All right, so we'll just camp out. Someone will just camp out there, and when it starts again, I assume it's going to start again then. When it starts again, just push the button. Great. So back to the text, okay? <laughs> what, what detractors, speaking of detractors, what detractors are you allowing in your life that's minimizing your faith in Christ and his powerful work through you? Is there something you can identify this morning today? Is there something that's stealing your attention, robbing your joy, believer? Something keeping you back from pursuing Christ with all that you have and all that you are? I'm not advocating this morning that miraculous physical healing from pain or sickness is the norm. 
Because, in fact, I think the opposite is true for believers. Most often, we learn of Christ's way through the difficult road of suffering. But I think the larger point here is that Jesus' powerful ministry through His people did not cease with His death. The larger point is that Jesus' powerful ministry continues on then and it continues on today because of His resurrection from the dead, because of His ascension to the Father, and because He has sent the Holy Spirit down to indwell His people. The Spirit-filled church gives what it has to others. The Spirit-filled believer gives what he or she has to others. And so this account is as much about spiritual healing as it is about physical healing. The second thing that I think Luke intends to communicate to us is that Jesus Christ satisfies our deepest need. He satisfies our deepest need. The deepest need of humanity is spiritually discerned. But even Christians led by the Holy Spirit struggle with this because the urgency of temporal needs is so strong today. Jesus spoke to this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, right? Our our temporal needs, though, they, they tend to have a blinding effect to our deepest need. And our deepest need, hear me out, your deepest need is to know God. The deepest need of humanity is to commune with God. The lame man never expected this healing. Maybe at one point he expected it, or maybe at one point he at least hoped for it. Maybe when he heard the news of Jesus, uh, this, this great teacher coming to visit Jerusalem, coming to visit the temple, the very temple he was sitting beside. Maybe when he heard this during, maybe when he heard this during his life and and during Jesus' earthly ministry, he perhaps got excited thinking that maybe he would be healed and be made whole. But if the lame man was lame since birth, I think we can reasonably assume that his daily lying at the temple gate begging for alms wasn't, wasn't a recent or new vocation. Whatever the case, he was looking for a handout, but what he got was so much more. Instead of a handout, what he got was a, a new life. This is what the lame man received. And Luke tells us in verse 16, the man had been restored to perfect health. This perfect health literally means he was made whole. It means completeness. It means well-being in all parts. His deepest need that day was met. But his deepest need wasn't the money to pay the rent, are the money to buy food, though those are important, they're not the most important. His deepest need wasn't even physical healing, though that's important too. His deepest need was to know God, it was to commune with God. His deepest need was to arrive at the place of joy so that he might praise God. And so this this joy in his life comes from faith in Christ, according to verse 16. This is what Peter says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And look at what happens in verses 8 and 9 there of chapter 3. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. 
And as he realized he could walk, he entered the temple with Peter and John and walking and leaping. He began leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. You think that he wasn't filled with joy? You think that his life wasn't changed in a moment, in an instant? He was. Why do you think Luke gives us this story as one of the first accounts of what we see happening in the early church? Friend, know that your deepest need is not financial stability. It's not more material possessions. It's not even physical health. Your deepest need is not the restoration of some difficult, estranged relationship. While all of these are proper and good, your deepest need is much greater. Your deepest need is to commune with God, the creator. Your deepest need is to know God by faith in Jesus Christ. Your deepest need is to receive new life. And then church, I want to exhort us in, in a similar way. We need to see that Peter was a vessel of the Lord to meet the lame man's deepest need. So we as the church, as believers in Christ, followers of Christ, we're to be watching and ready like Peter, right? To be used to meet the deepest need of those that we encounter. Instead of giving money to meet a physical need, you see the contrast there, right? Peter could have just given money. I mean, the church has been receiving the gifts. They were, uh, everyone was, was supplying things as, as they had been needed, we see in Acts chapter 2. Not suggesting that Peter is lying, but Peter sees the deepest need of this man. And instead of giving physical money to meet the physical need, Peter took time on his way to the, in the ninth hour in the temple to pray. He took time to stop. And to meet this man's deepest need. In one sense, church, this is why we we go on missions, right? This is why we go to Uganda. We don't just send money. We go. We go to meet the deepest need. We go to share the hope and the truth of the gospel. We go to encourage brothers and sisters in the faith. And so I want us to see that God's glory and power are displayed when the church lives and tells others about God's redemptive mission in Jesus' name. Well, not only is there power in the name of Jesus to make new that which sin has corrupted, there's truth in the person of Jesus. And we see this in verses 11 through 16. There's power in the name of Jesus and there's truth in the person of Jesus. That means Jesus can be trusted. This miracle of healing, it it sparked the interest of the crowd. And Peter quickly deflects, saying in verses 11 and 12 that this power for healing is from Jesus. Look at verses 11 and 12. While he clung to Peter and John, that's the lame man, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon, or Solomon's colonnade. In verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this? Or or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? In other words, Peter's saying it wasn't us. We didn't make him walk. It was Jesus. You see, true disciples of Christ reflect glory to Christ. And Peter wasn't a glory hog here, unlike many faith healers today. He said "It's, it's not by our power or piety that this man walks. It's not because of my holiness, Peter's saying. 
Not because of my righteousness. Peter wasn't about to rob God of his glory. Instead, he sees the gathered crowd and he begins to preach about Jesus who has the power to make all people whole. You see, true disciples of Christ always desire to point others to Christ. And that's exactly what we see Peter here doing. I want to give us three important truths from verses 13 through 15 that are really titles ascribed to Jesus. And I think they're important for us to see and to understand because it ties in through verse 16. First, in verse 13, we see this title for Jesus that he's the glorified servant of God. You see that in verse 13? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Peter begins quoting from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. It would have been a familiar passage for all the crowd who was gathered there. It's the passage where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers. And so Peter identifies Jesus as the one who has been sent by Israel's God. He identifies Jesus as the glorified servant, the one who faithfully lived out God's redemptive mission for the life of the world. It was Jesus who suffered as Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Read Isaiah 53 later on today and see this picture of the suffering servant if you're not familiar with it. And it was Jesus who endured the cross to make payments for the, to make payment for the sins of mankind. So Jesus' glorification then means that his suffering and resurrection actually satisfied God's wrath against guilty sinners. So he is the glorified servant of God. But also notice in verse 14 that he's the holy and righteous one. He's the holy and righteous one. In verse 14, Peter continues, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, speaking of Barabbas. Now, this title, Holy and Righteous, it speaks to Jesus' character. So he's the glorified servant of God, and he's the holy and righteous one. He is the one who's upright in his character. His God-centeredness and and even his innocence are, are met with this qualification of holy and righteous. His holiness and righteousness also speaks to his pleasing life before God the Father. And so the contrast we see here is that he's the innocent one whose life is is given in exchange for Barabbas, the murderer. But then there's a third title, and that third title is in verse 15. He's the author of life. And so Peter continues, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses Author of life, it means the one who brings life. The one who initiates life. As one commentator said, he is the one who pioneered the way through death, decay, and corruption, and out of the other side into a kind of life that nobody had imagined before. This is the work of Jesus Christ. The irony of verses 14 and 15 is that they killed the innocent author of life, set a guilty taker of life free, and in so doing became the guilty takers of lives themselves. So this is really a stinging indictment that Peter delivers to the crowd. 
It's an indictment that confronts their self-exalting tendencies. It's an indictment that confronts moral corruption. And it's an indictment that confronts their appetite for murder. But this stinging indictment of the crowd, self-exalting tendencies and moral corruption and appetite for murder should not fall on deaf ears today. Human nature hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. We too are broken, in need of healing. We too are sinners who share the same appetites and self-exalting tendencies and the same moral corruption as those who Peter's addressing in the crowd that day. But the good news is this. The good news is that faith in Christ heals our brokenness. Faith in Christ heals our brokenness. We see this in verse 16, where Peter's leading the crowd to see that faith in Christ can make them whole, just like the lame man. And in verse 16, we read, and in his name, by faith in his name, this is speaking of Jesus. He's telling the crowd, this man that you've been awed about, that is now standing, that you've seen here from his early years, all of his life, this man that's now walking around and leaping and praising God joyfully in the temple, this man was made strong through faith in Jesus. And he's given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is what Peter declares to the crowd. As I approach this portion of the, the passage, one of the questions that comes to my mind is, this is obviously the good news of the gospel. But why is the gospel the good news of salvation through Christ, rejected by so many? Why is the gospel rejected by so many? Well, I think one reason is because people don't want to relinquish control over their own lives, right? There's that self-exalting tendency. As the glorified servant of God, Jesus countered our self-exalting nature. We're spiritually sick and and broken in need of a Savior, the one who could live a perfectly sinless life. And so Jesus did what we could not. He submitted complete control over his life to the Father, even to the point of his own death. Hear what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, there is the glorified servant of God. Or in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that's, that's you and me, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The call of the gospel is to relinquish control over one's life. Perhaps people reject the gospel, the work of Christ, because they don't want to relinquish control over their own lives. Does that categorize you this morning? Any of us in here? We're struggling to relinquish control over our own lives. A second reason people reject the gospel, perhaps, that we see here is because people don't want to admit their moral corruption. People don't want to admit their moral corruption. You know, many judge themselves by the standard of others. 
instead of looking to the standard of God. But when we do this, we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that God will accept us as we are because in some way we've kind of twisted the facts to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by looking at someone who's not quite as morally good as us. And so we deceive ourselves. But what Scripture overwhelmingly affirms again and again, and even here in, in Acts chapter 3, is that only Jesus lived a perfectly holy and righteous life. And verse 16 is clear that it's only by faith in Jesus that we can be made whole, that we can be made complete. So the gospel calls us to confess and repent of our moral corruption and in turn receive Christ's righteousness. But there's also a third reason, I think, that people reject the gospel. And the third reason, I think, is because people want to remain in darkness. I think this coincides with the appetite for murder of the crowd. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this about anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he goes on, if you're then offering your gift at the altar, remember that a brother has something against you. Leave it there. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Unrighteous anger is a serious offense in God's eyes. And by it, we hurt others. People want to remain in darkness. People want to love the world, as John writes in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What we have in the person and work of Jesus is one who has pioneered the new way. One who has initiated a, a, a way of reconciliation with the Father. He bridged the chasm, this chasm of destruction between God and man caused by sin. Jesus bridged that chasm, and it's Jesus who can make us whole. It's Jesus alone who can heal our brokenness. And this is what Peter is saying and claiming and proclaiming to the people, the crowd that's gathered there. Not only is there power in the name of Jesus to make new that which sin has corrupted, not only is there, there truth in the person of Jesus so that he can be trusted, but third and finally in verses 17 through 26, we see that there's hope through the work of Jesus. There's hope through the work of Jesus. I don't want us to lose sight of the big picture here. That is healing for the nations. For that's, that's where Acts is going. Healing for the nations which comes through Christ. And in verse 21 we see the big picture brought kind of back into view. Verse 21 <clears throat> Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see, through Jesus, there is coming a day when a complete and total restoration of all things will come. All of creation will be set free from bondage to corruption. And there will be this restoration between God's space and man's space. Between heaven and earth. And one day, as Revelation 21 says, we will dwell in God's presence. Heaven and earth united together. And we'll enjoy 
God's presence for eternity. Coming together as God's people. And even as we saw in the definition by Vaughn Roberts about the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. There is a day that is coming when that will be our reality. But until that day, there is a work that must be done. And a restoration that Peter is pointing us to is the one that the prophets spoke of. And so he highlights those prophets, Moses in verse 22, and Samuel in verse 24, and Abraham in verse 25. And in verse 26, he even highlights the blessedness that Israel was to enjoy in this process of restoration if they would turn from their wickedness. For it was through Israel that God would bring a blessing to all the nations. And so now what we see is Jesus Christ coming to redeem not only Israel, but all people, all who would profess faith in him and trust in him. So notice what Peter says in verse 17. Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. One time I was in New Orleans and I was there for a church member's surgery and after the surgery, while they were in recovery, I went to a restaurant that was near uh, the hospital, and I parked on one of the back streets, the side streets, and, uh, and as I, I parked there, I went, I ate lunch, and when I came back from eating lunch, I saw that I had a ticket, a parking ticket, on my, uh, under my, uh, my windshield wiper, and so I picked up the ticket, I was frustrated, I looked around, I didn't see any signs saying no parking here. There was no curb that was painted, nothing like that. I thought that I was within my rights. I thought this must be a, be a mistake. And so uh, I began researching and I figured out that there's a city ordinance, a law that states that you can't park within 15 feet of an intersection uh, in this particular area of the city. So I was frustrated and, and uh, I began drafting a, <clears throat> a letter because by all indications I had been a law-abiding citizen and I, I was ignorant of the law. So as I began writing the letter, thinking I could make a case for myself, I realized that my argument didn't hold water when I wrote that since there were no signs, uh, there were no signs standing or no curb painted, I could not have possibly known that there was a law against me parking here. And in that moment, I realized that just because I was ignorant of the law did not mean I didn't have to follow the law, right? I realized that just because I was ignorant of the law didn't mean that I wasn't guilty of breaking the law. In fact, I was guilty of breaking the law. And so there was a gospel lesson for this, uh, in this for me. Ignorance of the law didn't excuse my guilt for breaking the law. I sent the letter anyway, <laughs> hoping that there would be grace and mercy on the other end. But there wasn't. There was no grace. There was no mercy. I had to pay the fine. You know, this is what Peter's saying in verses 17 and 18. Though you were ignorant of your actions, you're still guilty for violating God's law. You still sinned against God when you unjustly put to death the glorified servant of God, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. Though you were ignorant of your actions, you're still guilty for sinning against God. 
And in verses 19 and 20, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to see that when they repent, their sins will be blotted out. Look at what verse 19 says. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Peter says, we need to repent. They need to repent. Repentance means to feel pain or sorrow or regret over something you've done, over over sin. And then that this repentance, it actually leads to a different way of living. It actually leads to God's way of living. It means that we're convicted because we have done wrong against God and we feel the weight of that and we're guilty because of it. But listen, there is joyful freedom in repentance. Look at what he goes on to say there in verse 20. Repent that, well, verse 19, that your sins may be blotted out. Think about having the whiteboard up here. And and on this whiteboard, there's every sin that you've committed. The ones that you don't want people to know about and the ones that you people know about. And in a moment, everyone is able to see that sin. But what Jesus has done is he's come And through repentance, through your repentance and faith in Jesus, he's taken that and he's erased the slate clean. He's removed it. He's blotted it out. How did he do this? He did it through his blood. When he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary, there was a new covenant that was formed through his life-giving blood. And when he rose from the grave, he secured that covenant for all who would believe in him. And so Peter says, repent Let your sins be blotted out. And then get this. Let times of refreshing come. Let the refreshment wash over you. Refreshment from the Lord's presence. This is the assurance and the certainty of knowing God. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let this refreshment come to you. It's great news that we have this assurance that when we turn to Christ, repent of our sin, that he refreshes us. You know what that looks like? He removes the guilt. He removes that condemnation. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in, in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, do you need to be refreshed this morning? If you do, I want you to know there's hope through Jesus Christ. There's hope for refreshment. There's hope for restoration. There's hope through the work of Jesus for your refreshment. Would you repent? Would you turn back to him? Would you surrender your life to follow him, confess your sin before him, and begin living for him? Maybe this morning you need healing from your brokenness. You need to know that you can trust the person of Jesus. He will heal you. He will heal the brokenness that years of hurt have taken away. He can heal the pain deep within if you trust him. Maybe for you this morning, maybe you need to be made whole in some spiritual sense or even in some physical sense. And if that's you, I want to affirm you and encourage you that the power of Christ can heal you. 
ask you surrender to him. Submit your life to him. The greatest need of man is that we commune with the Father. Are you communing with God, believer? It's still your greatest need. Are you communing with your Father? I want you to consider that this morning as we close in prayer. Maybe there's something that God has laid on your heart, convicted you of by his Holy Spirit. That's something you need to confess before the Lord in prayer. Maybe for you it looks like learning more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I want you to know that I'm available during the service, during this time of response when we'll be singing. I'll be available down here in the front or I'm available after the service to speak with you about what it means to surrender your life, have this healing, this refreshment that comes from Jesus Christ. It would be my joy and honor to speak with you and talk to you about what that looks like. Would you join me in prayer now? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are gracious and merciful so much more than any of us deserve. You extend your hand to us. And Lord, as your people, you desire to work through us. And so, Father, I pray for each of us that you would incite our hearts and our minds to pursue you with all that we have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Father, for those that are here this morning, that anyone that might not know you, they might not be able to commune with you. I pray, Holy Father, that you would work in their life to draw them near. Break down those barriers that, have, that they've erected. Draw them to you, Father, so that by your Holy Spirit they would, they would sense your wooing and your calling. And Lord, have your way in all of us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.